0: Welcome back to another episode of The Good, The Bad, and The Hungy on the Voice of Wrestling Podcasting Network. My name is Tyler Fornes, and with me is my co-host, Fred Moreland. And Fred, it was me that had the housing issues this week, because it sounds like yours are finally done.
1: Yeah, they actually wrapped up today, so I can finally like move on with my life and not have strange people messing with my toilet. Um, sorry to have uh sorry to hear that yours are continuing. I do have however have a hell of a story from my family. Um I a brother-in-law of mine got T-boned in a car wreck, which uh, fortunately everyone walked away from that all right, but they took his car to a dealership for repairs and then a plane crashed into it this morning.
0: Ooh.
1: Which is uh completely wild and unexpected, and unfortunately a couple people on the plane died. Um But yeah, God really wants that uh, car to go away.
0: Was the car actually impacted?
1: I don't know yet. It feels kind of you know tacky to ask. Like I know two people just died, but what about the car? (laughs) But
0: yeah, yeah. um, I I sympathize. I had a old coworker who was striving to get his pilot's license, and he did. And he actually in a plane he was flying up to Duluth. Um, He they had a crash with a malfunction, and he ended up passing away. As long as as well as just two passengers, so I can sympathize for that's those terrible. people. Um, yeah, but uh, he got to experience the life he wanted to. He got to he got to become a pilot, and yeah, uh, like that's not something everybody gets to do. Experience something that is their true dream. But uh, our dream is to cover AEW, uh, with with a little bit of sarcasm, and I can almost guarantee you, Fred, it was not Ariel Helwani's because he he interviewed Tony Khan and then went oh on about how it was one of the worst interviews he'd ever done because Tony Khan wouldn't give him anything. And this ended up becoming way bigger of a story. He could have just not said anything. He just said, Hey, it was just a frustrating interview. I just didn't feel it gave me enough, but it didn't stop there. He started going off on um, AEW fans saying, I can't remember the exact term he called them. Um, but, he essentially said that if um, you genuinely feel that AEW is a better product than WWE, you're an absolute
1: liar. Yeah, that was uh, that was a thing that happened last Wednesday. Um, so I, I don't. Have you actually watched the interview with Tony Khan and I have, I,
0: I have not seen it from start to finish. I have seen good portions of it. Um, I I thought it was fine. Like I, I didn't I didn't really feel it was offensive. I thought a lot of the questions were fair, but at the end of the day, as a as an interviewer, like I am an amateur interviewer by comparison to Ariel Hawani. Hawani has interviewed numerous people in the fighting business, and you know, as much as wrestling may not be the same as UFC, it's the same business. It is a promotional business based on physical violence, and you can boil it down to the same exact thing. He should have realized that Tony Khan wasn't going to give him anything and try and shift the subject into something that became more interesting. And I felt like he dropped the ball a little bit there. I don't feel it was unfair that he asked those questions because as an interviewer, you should be asking those questions. Yeah. I mean, you
1: have to be malpracticed practically to not ask about punk and the young bucks and the other Mm -hmm. dramatic stuff that's been going on.
0: But the second uh, Tony Khan says, Hey, I'm, I can't talk about it. And then, okay, you're going to ask a follow-up. And then he says, I still can't talk about it. Okay. That's it. You should understand as an interviewer that you're not going to get any information. And you know what? Frustrating. That was probably going to be a big basis of his interview. Fair. But now you have to try and go somewhere else. You have to talk about different subjects and you have to get different perspectives and try and make the interview interesting. And there's a lot of meat on the bone with AEW and Tony Khan. That shouldn't be hard. But Helwani didn't do that nearly to the extent that he should have, considering his interview level. And for me, that was the biggest frustration.
1: Yeah, I watched the whole thing. And uh, I think there are a few missteps Helwani had that uh, popped up along the way that probably kept him from having as good of an interview as he could have. Uh, The first thing was starting the interview by going, oh, I thought you didn't like me. Like, I don't know, like... That, that's not even like putting your uh, your interview subject on the back foot. It's just outright alienating them before you start asking them questions, and that was outright bizarre to watch. Um, and, and Tony Conner acted like any human being would—that would just be like, "Well, I don't know what you're talking about." And um, I, I, I will say that, um, yeah, the biggest thing that stuck out to me is that. Helwani technically didn't even ask him about CM Punk or the Young Bucks or the Elite or anything like that. What he did was, is it all right if I ask you about CM Punk? And he did that like two or three times, like, you know, shifting it to the Elite, you know, all in a row. And um, and Tony Khan was just like, I can't talk about that right now. And I don't know how that becomes the big thrust of Helwani's complaints, which we'll get into a little bit later. Um, but, yeah, I, I will say that this was not a great interview. It was not particularly insightful, uh, more or less. Uh, Tony Khan has a real talent slash propensity to take a question and then dodge what is being asked and just turn it into rambling either about how great his talent is or how much success they had with a show or just how um, great their partners are. So I will agree that it was far from a must-listen to interview. I would not really advise anyone wanting to learn anything about AEW to listen to this thing because, like, the most insightful thing I might have had was uh, either that he ch- chatted um, on AOL with Luthez when he was twelve, uh, which is wild to think about, um, like not in a like organized chat, but just like through DMs, um, or that. Um, Chris has lost 31 pounds this year. Like, that's as good as the info got, it, which is to say, there wasn't much here. Um, they just, uh, you know, it was really uh, a whole lot of nothing. Um, Tony Khan said that he, like, there was stuff like he was asked if uh, Soraya was going to wrestle, and he basically you no know, commented that and said, we'll just see what happens. And I get that one because he's promoting and stuff. But mm-hmm. you know, like when you add that on to all the no comments, I can definitely see how that would be frustrating. Um, uh, I don't know what Helwani was expecting, though, uh, with some of these no comments. Like some of them made sense, and some were just you know a bit extraneous. But for him to go out and say that was the worst interview of his career, uh, then that guy's got a charmed life. <laughs> Because this is just a real, like, not particularly cooperative, but not particularly disastrous interview. Um, There was a podcast called Effectively Wild that's about baseball. And I remember they had an interview with Randy Johnson. And he completely sandbagged it because he didn't want to do it. And he was just like, I don't, you know, basically was being like not even acknowledging their questions. Um, That was far worse than this. You know, I just don't know. I don't know how this could be the worst interview you've ever had if you've had a career as long as Ariel Helwani's. Um, and then um, the big news, I guess, was Helwani going off, um, which was very bizarre when you watched that. You know, he starts off by calling, uh, it's from a Q&A session on the next episode of one of his shows, the MMA Hour. And he starts off by calling AEW, referring to AEW Freakazoids.
0: Freakazoids. Yeah. yeah. I knew it was something outlandish.
1: And said that they would attack him over the slightest criticism of the company or WWE praise. And then he goes on to say WWE is obviously superior. Um, and I don't know how much of that is like a genuine opinion or how much of it is him trolling people. In re- I don't know if there was – like I didn't even know about the initial interview until – the fallout from his trying to stir shit came out, but it definitely came across like he was trying to stir up some trouble. Um, He uh, complained about, um, he said it was an honor to be involved with doing the voiceover for Extreme Rules, and uh, he said that previously he would not have done it because he wanted to be neutral, but now he just wants to have fun which I think is uh, probably the worst thing he said, honestly, the whole time. Like, that really undermined any kind of uh, professionalism, you know, of him, in my opinion, based off that. I mean, it's just a very dumb controversy. I don't know why this became a thing at all. But it's 2022, and this is what last Wednesday was. <laughs> so it, it became
0: a thing because Ariel Hawani decided to whine about it. And, and because he has a large platform, it spread like wildfire.
1: Oh, yeah, and- yeah. It totally makes sense that it became a thing, but like I I get the mechanism of it, but I don't know like why why that would be why he complains so much about this,
0: you know? Because he's basically on the WWE payroll. He has hosts a podcast for The Ringer. He talks about WWE with Bill Simmons, who basically is on the WWE payroll as well. Like it's one thing if you want to have objectivity, which I feel like um, you and I both have genuine objectivity we're going to tell you what we like and we're going to tell you what we don't and we're not going to be beholden to any one entity uh, by having to say like something is good or something is bad and in the world of football there's something that i like to call state-run media and now when you think of state-run media it's like hey the government is telling you good things that only the government wants you to know about like left uh, leaning news companies are going to be less likely to tell you about democrats being bad right-leaning news companies are going to be less likely to tell you the Republicans are being bad because it doesn't fit their agenda, it doesn't fit their narrative. Now, one of the things that's tough about being state-run media in the sport of football, NFL Network and people within NFL media are going to be a lot less likely to report on genuine news stories that paint the NFL in a negative connotation. They're going to be a lot less likely to talk about a guy like Deshaun Watson, They're going to be a lot less likely to talk about how Daniel Snyder might be the worst human being in the history of professional sports owners. Like they're going to be a lot less likely to talk about those things because it paints their league in a bad image. And when you talk about Ariel Hawani, it's in a very similar fashion because he is in a position where the ringer is very pro WWE. They have a partnership. You don't want to talk bad about your partner and That's, I think, one of the reasons why it's very hard for me to take him seriously in this instance because there is a form of... I'm trying to think of the right word. a Like, he feels beholden to them. He's he's going to be biased. He's going to be biased for WWE. And if you're going to do that, that's fine. Like, I don't think anybody's going to blame you for taking a paycheck. But then you can't sit here... And, and can call yourself a fair and objective analyst when you're talking about another competing company. It's That's just not how it works. You're either going to be biased or you're going to be fair. And right now, Ariel Helwani is trying to play both sides. And honestly, if you play both sides, you're going to fall into the pit of despair. It's just not something that's going to work. I can't take him seriously when talking wrestling anymore because he towed that line and then he jumped way into the WWE pool, which... If you want, Like I said, if you want to do that, that's fine. Be a WWE homer. Be a person who just supports the company. Then you give me no reason to listen to your opinion on professional wrestling because I know it's going to come from that one-track mind. And to me, that was the biggest takeaway from the interview is I like Ariel Hawani when it comes to MMA. I think he's fair. I think he asks tough questions. I think he asks quality questions and does a very good job at reporting the sport. He is one of the best objectively. In wrestling, I don't even know if I consider him like the top 200 at this point, because he has just shown himself to not be any form of objective. He is going to have a WWE bias. And at this point, why should I listen to any of his takes on professional wrestling? Because I already know he's going to come from that slant.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I can't really disagree with you. I was, honestly, my takeaway wasn't so much that he's, like, bought and paid for, because I, you know, I don't know exactly what his business relationship is, exactly how direct it is, but just doing the voiceover. And he said he didn't get paid for doing that. Nick Khan,
0: like, uh, come on. Like, we know what happened. We know the connection.
1: Right, obviously. His agent used to be Nick Khan, who is now, of course, uh, like, very high up in the chain in WWE. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, you know, even if you aren't directly getting a hand, you know, like a, a check or anything from WWE, you've, uh, kind of put yourself in a position where you might be unconsciously biased towards them. Um, you know, if you start taking the kind of benefits like that. So, you know, I, it just really came across poorly for him. It felt like very, honestly, Ryan Sandin, like, Um, It felt like something that he would have done, and that's not a a great thing. You know, the guy that said that he didn't want to talk about Vince McMahon's story, you know, Vince McMahon having to leave WWE because it, quote-unquote, bummed him out.
0: Yeah, it's... it's, Overall, it's just a, a frustrating thing that, in all actuality, shouldn't have happened. And we shouldn't have been spending 10 to 15 minutes talking about Ariel Helwani and how much he just did not like talking to Tony Khan. When in reality, he, as a professional, and I'm going to call him an expert as far as an interviewer. Because if you listen to some of the stuff that he talks about with MMA guys and how he interacts with them, how he generates thought provoking discussion, he's tremendous and he's genuinely great. And it felt like he had an agenda and he did not try to actually get a really quality interview he tried to get a couple points and he tried to drive them home and he would not steer from them. And that kind of stubbornness to me is just the most frustrating part. It's one of the reasons why I don't enjoy listening to a lot of interviews of people because there's so many people who are genuinely bad at interviewing. And in this case, Helwani was one of them. And like, here's another part that we haven't discussed yet, Fred. He obviously interviewed Triple H and one of the reasons why i kind of put the two and two together with the business relationship with wwe even though we may not have any official like and i use air quotes tangible proof we know and he did not directly ask triple h about vince mcmahon having to resign because of the sexual assault allegations he never asked him like hey how are you going to you know take over do you know why Vince resigned he didn't ask those professional journalistic questions he kind of asked questions about it but he never did and like you should have asked the questions to Tony Khan absolutely but he did not ask them to Triple H in in at least as many words like what's your opinion on that because my opinion is It's incredibly hypocritical to not ask the same questions, considering, like, obviously sexual assault and what happened backstage in AEW are completely different as far as extreme levels, okay? But they are incredibly identical when they are two humongous stories within the context of each environment. You suspend four of your top stars because of a backstage fight that potentially has legal issues, that's that's their biggest deal. That's their biggest story and that's something you have to ask about as a journalist when you talk about WWE number one is you have to ask about Vince McMahon you have to ask about the sexual assault allegations the NDAs the future of the company how are they going to improve how are they going to fix these that's their biggest story and as a journalist you have to ask those questions how are you viewing Ariel Helwani considering how he handled Tony Khan and how he handled Triple H
1: Uh, I have to be honest, I did not watch the Triple H uh, interview because Helwani is just not on my radar regularly. I don't care anything whatsoever about MMA, and I don't follow WWE so closely that I'm looking out for every Triple H media appearance. That's just, you know, I'll hear sometimes that, like, uh, Gunther has a good match, and I'll pop that on. And that's about the extent of my caring. Yeah. I, uh, you know, assuming that he didn't like he, he should have outright asked about the Vince McMahon situation. And if he did not then that's, that's pretty bad on his part. Um, I don't know if he thought that he kind of accomplished that by uh, tap dancing around it. Uh, and then when he saw that he wasn't going to get anything, he just didn't even go as far as to outright say, Hey, what about Vince leaving? Um, I also, I do remember on the uh, flagship that, uh, Lanza mentioned that he did not uh, bring up anything to do with all the misconduct situation with Bill DeMott, which was under um, the direct purview of Triple H before his initial uh, heart condition slash possible firing slash that whole deal. Um, so I don't know. I mean, to me it's pretty obvious that the Vince man story uh, is one of the two biggest of the past of the century. Uh, in professional wrestling along with the Crispin Benoit murders. And the CM Punk story is the biggest in, outside of like the founding of AEW, I reckon, uh, in AEW's history. So there's a definite comparison there. But if he softballed one and didn't the other, then that's uh, definitely not good.
0: And it's all about journalistic integrity too, right? Because Ariel sure. Hawani considers himself a journalist. And quite frankly, especially in the world of MMA, he absolutely is, and he does a very good job at it. There's a reason why he was the number one guy at ESPN. There's a reason why once he left ESPN, he was able to craft his own sphere and really build up his brand to a point where he could self-sustain.
1: And was it Fox that hired him uh, over the objections of Dana White, or was that uh, ESPN? Fox. Okay, yeah, because I know they had it run there too. Um they,
0: had to, they did take his credential away for, I think it was like 36 hours. And then uh, I think Dana White got bullied into giving it back because it, it was a bunch of bullshit.
1: Yeah. Well, that's kind of the Dana White way. Um, <laughs> I would, um, to me, like the, the, the mask slipping, if you will, is when he just started outright trashing AEW fans, like with a broad brush. That um, just felt very gratuitous mm-hmm. and unnecessary and kind of goes against the whole, I'm a... I'm a journalist um, kind of thing. Uh, You know, I don't really have anything good to say about the behavior (laughs) in general. Um, It's not, it doesn't make it come off. Well, Um, even if you are frustrated, I can see why you would be frustrated with Tony Khan, to some extent coming off that interview. Calling it the first one you've ever done is uh, again, either you've had a very blessed life or you, um, you know, you're exaggerating. The guy
0: interviews MMA fighters. Now,
1: has and he ever it, interviewed Dana White? Like, I can't imagine Dana White being an easier interview. I know that at this yeah. point, like Dana doesn't want to see him, but at some point, mm-hmm.
0: I'll be honest. I think he's interviewed him a few times, and Dana White, like, once you know Dana White and once you understand who he is and what he's about, as far as his his promotions and how he talks to people, he sh- he should be a relatively easy interview because you know exactly what you're going to be able to get out of him, and you're going to know exactly. How to push his buttons in a respectful way to get more out of him. Like, Helwani should have had that one in the bag. And I can understand from your perspective, because this is the first time he's ever interviewed Tony Khan. And yeah. I remember Dave Meltzer said, I felt kind of rough after my first one, too. But you should still, as a professional interviewer, and we all know Dave, we all love Dave, but Dave is Dave. Dave is a very unique case and individual, as much as he's a journalist. He is not a traditional journalist because he he just, he just approaches things in such a different way, which is an incredible blessing to this industry. But it's just different when you're talking about Helwani interviewing somebody for the first time and Dave interviewing somebody for the first time. So it's, to me, he should have still been better, but I totally do get his frustrations too. But you should have also been smart enough to know that, hey, he's not going to tell you that. And you also just should have been smart enough to know that, He's not going to think the Attitude Era is the best era in wrestling history. That to me was the most. Mid-South Tony. One. Oh, he's it, Mid-South Tony. No, I actually think it was the nineteen eighties.
1: Like, yeah, that was um, that was very funny because like Helwani just acted completely flabbergasted that anyone would say anything other than the Attitude Era. Um, so. Okay, I have a question for you, actually, about uh, Helwani, because again, I'm not super familiar with his work, just due to not really being an MMA guy. Uh, Does he know much about wrestling? Like, is he knowledgeable about it, or is it like a surface level I watched in the 90s kind of thing?
0: I think it's somewhere between he's a semi-regular watcher of wrestling and a super casual. I just remember all the the dick jokes from the late 1990s WWF. Like, I, I don't think he's Bill Simmons is a guy that is a genuine wrestling fan, and I at think least at we, one point,
1: yeah, I think yeah. he. May, I don't know how much he is now, but I know that he was like an observer subscriber at one point. So I
0: like think that. if we were to sit down and talk to him about anything WWE, I think Bill Simmons would be a tremendous interview. But I also think he's he is a very Americanized wrestling fan. Yeah, and he'll be able to talk Monday Night Wars. He'll be able to talk um, like Attitude Era, Ruthless Aggression, but. If we sit down and talk to him about AEW or New Japan or anything, Mexico, Europe, he's going to give us little to nothing. But I think that he is a much bigger wrestling guy than Ariel Helwani is. Okay. And I think that's just the nature of Helwani is he is an MMA guy at right, his yeah. core.
1: Uh, so, do you think that maybe he went not underprepared to the uh, Tony Khan interview? Because it, it felt like there were ways, like, okay, so you ask, um, you, well, you don't even ask, uh, tell me about the CM Punk situation. You ask, can I ask you about the CM Punk situation? Which, you're, like, putting your own uh, built stumbling blocks in front of you before you even get to the question, but, like would he have known to, like, ask, like, okay, have, will you make an announcement about their return, that kind of thing, or just, um, you know, like, try to poke at it a different way to try to work around? Because he didn't do that at all, and I just don't know if that was, like, because he got thrown or what. I
0: think... I That's a really interesting point. I think it was a, a combination of being underprepared and f- fully prepared. Okay. Because I think his... If the interview went the way he wanted, he was ready to go. He had his talking points. He knew yeah. how to uh, go with those talking points. But I think, in essence, he was underprepared because if things went off the rails like they did, and those talking points they couldn't be hit on because of obvious reasons, he didn't have a lot of depth to go into. Like if Tony ever referenced anything from Mid South, because we like <laughs> he loves Mid South, yeah, I don't think Ariel Hawani would have been able to lace up any form of boots for that conversation and i think to me that's where he could have done a better job he could have understood like hey like let's figure out the background of who i'm talking to a little bit more than the surface level wikipedia and then go from there and i think he could have done a much better job but in essence like i i just don't think you can take helwani seriously with professional wrestling anymore
1: it really hurt him in my eyes. I'm not going to say never say never, but at least when it comes to any kind of critical analysis uh, negatively towards WWE or positively elsewhere, it's not a good look. Not a good start. So,
0: No, not a good start. And now that we have uh, spent 25 minutes talking about um, <laughs> WWE Ariel Helwani, which we are 25 assume. minutes
1: closer to the grave, man.
0: Yeah. Um, and Odie is starting to nip at my fingers. And if you don't know Odie, he is my wonderful French bulldog puppy. Who was in the crate for three hours? So he is very playful right now. Um, let's talk about Chris Jericho re-upping with AEW through twenty twenty five, and I think it's very noteworthy here that he is going to be a much more involved with creative. Fred, I think almost everything the Jericho Appreciation Society has done so far, everything Chris Jericho has touched in this company outside of maybe uh, the Mimosa match, um, and we all know that that Mimosa match is. Look, it was utterly absurd, but I think we can chalk I to like it. I kind of like the
1: absurdity of it. I'll be honest; I, I like, I'm not too. saying any kind, of, any kind of classic, but like for what that feud was and what the characters mm-hmm. were at that point in time, I, I was all right with it. You know, yeah, and
0: and it was pandemic. We're not yeah. talking about doing it in front of thousands of fans. Where they did it in front of like a <laughs> oh, hundred people, and because because they did it in front of a hundred people, I I give them a little bit of a break. Like yeah. stadium stampede awesome concept when you have no fans because you don't really have a lot that you can go with it was two months into the pandemic they there was no end in sight as far as uh empty arena wrestling so they found something that they could potentially utilize and you know what they did a freaking tremendous job with it and the
1: second one was still like one of my all-time favorite matches that's not a joke it was just great like, um. uh, but, yeah, Jericho is a creative genius. You know, I'd agree with you as far as the Mimosa Mayhem match is mm-hmm. not being a particular high-level thing for him, but he also, like, really bit, played a big part in, like, establishing Orange Cassidy as a pretty major star in the company. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, honestly, the low point of uh, Jericho would probably be towards the tail end of last year when he had the babyface run opposite uh, the men of the year and Dan Lambert, and we kind of got the a uh, very tired, it felt like a very out-of-place... Um, Return to like, Stephanie, you're a stupid hoe kind of jokes from, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the attitude, late attitude era. You know, I will
0: say I am one of the few people who genuinely love Dan Lambert. I thought oh, he was, oh I like, like Lambert. Let's he be was just but that feud was weird. And I will say I weird. I never watched it back because I was live in the building for full gear during that match. That match was chaotically fun.
1: It was and enjoyable. I, the the yeah. the 10-man the tag with the MMA guys, you're talking about that one, I think.
0: Yeah, um, and then uh, they had uh, Baron Von Rasky with the claw. Well, oh, yeah, that like, was a
1: great – I mean, I, that again, that wasn't a classic. That wasn't like the Anarchy in the Arena match or anything. But it was um, – I thought it was perfectly acceptable fun.
0: Anarchy in the Arena, Fred, might be my match of the year.
1: It's like, up there. That was a fantastic uh, moment in wrestling history, um, one yeah, of the fantastic. highlights of the year.
0: Um, And I I think Jericho re-upping with uh, AEW leads some credence into him potentially not necessarily being AEW's biggest star, being Ring of Honor's biggest star. And uh, and Econ promised great news about weekly ROH. And the quote is, our goal is to have one more great pay-per-view for Ring of Honor 2022, which I think we can safely assume is going to be final battle, which is traditionally held in December. And then followed that up with a weekly show in 2023. Now, there was immediate um, thought the second that Jericho won that ROH title that this could be a signal that weekly TV is on the way. Because as great as Claudio Castagnoli is, is he the guy that you want leading your brand for the first true run of TV? Because, look, let's, let's just be honest with ourselves. ROH TV just wasn't what... It's going to be with Tony Khan. It's not yeah. going to have the same dollars. It's not going to be a syndicated thing. It's going to be a weekly run television product. Yeah. And Because of that, having a guy like Chris Jericho, and we saw what Chris Jericho did for AEW when it first started off. He is a legit world champion. He is a, a certified wrestling hall of famer. I don't know if he's in the
1: uh, uh, Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame yeah. yet. he he's is yeah. been and in for he, almost a decade now, I think, actually.
0: He absolutely should be in. And it's it's just different when you have a guy like Chris Jericho who's got the name value, the recognition. He's been around for – this is his fourth decade of wrestling because he, he started off in the mid-'90s. He's worked Mexico. He's big in Japan. WCW. He worked the Attitude Era. He worked Ruthless Aggression. He worked all the way through. And you talk to guys that – anywhere from like 12 – to 70 they're going to know who Chris Jericho is if they've ever been a wrestling fan and that's going to give immediate credence when you have him on commercials on advertisements bulletin board or uh, billboards radio spots all of that is going to be so huge with Chris Jericho that's going to immediately spike the product up and give it a floor that somebody like Claudio Castagnoli even though with us it probably gives ring of honor a higher floor to start with because we know his history and we know how much he means to that ring of honor brand and how special it was for him to win that title but for those who are not super hardcore like we are chris jericho is such a big difference mover and i i think that's going to be huge for whatever step ring of honor takes
1: yeah i mean i think that um you can definitely make the argument that he is probably the most important person on screen for AW. Uh, and that's with, Moxley um, having the great years he has had and Kenny Omega and etc. uh, hangman page. But I just think there's a, a real argument that it's Jericho. And, um, I mean, he's played such a big role. He's really stepped up, especially in the aftermath of, uh, brawl out with CM Punk and everything. And, um, He's really shown a lot of leadership. He's shown a lot of creativity. He's done a lot to get people over. I mean, hell, he was trying to get a uh, Shook D over until I guess there was some backstage issue with him, and then it uh, that just got dropped uh, real fast. Uh, but he's established a lot of big stars in the company, and um, I mean, he's fantastic. He's just yeah. really contributed so much to AEW.
0: He, he really has. He has been honestly, he's been the linchpin to their success. And as, as much as the elite and CM Punk can truly be credited with the creation of AEW because of obviously the elite really making a brand for themselves outside of WWE, which at the time felt impossible, the success of all in, but CM Punk was really the catalyst of wanting something different at the end of his WWE run in 2014. But Chris Jericho was the reason why it was as successful. And I think that's awesome. Um, A few other things to uh, talk about here. We have some new people that are all elite. We're going to start off from the bottom and work our way up. Zach Clayton is all elite. And I
1: I will say that I don't know that all these guys are like all elite, all elite, you know, but Mm -hmm. he is on a per appearance deal, I do believe.
0: Zach Clayton got the graphic.
1: Oh, he did get the graphic. Okay. Got the graphic. Got a written deal then. So he's got like Mm -hmm. monthly pay and everything. So cool. Um, I don't know what to think about him. Like from the one, you know, one appearance I've seen of him, cause I don't dredge through every dark and elevation. I wasn't terribly impressed by him, but he's got the connection to Jersey shore, I guess. I don't know, man. I mean, if it's a flyer at low cost flyer, then that's fine.
0: Yeah. Um, look, he's probably going to be nothing, but he, he already draws from a different form of entertainment, which is very similar to what WWE did with the Miz because of uh, the real world and obviously Zach Clayton with Jersey shore. And I believe he was also on the challenge. Like that is, that is something that would draw someone like my wife because my wife is really big into those reality shows. So that is an element that Tony Khan is trying to tap into. Will it be successful? That remains to be seen. I have my serious doubts and I can kind of tell you do as well, Fred, but for minimal money, who cares? Let's see how it works.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good flyer to take. You know, if it pays off, great. If it doesn't, you're not really out anything. Uh, the Kingdom are kind of all elite. They showed up at the end of Rampage last week. Uh, so uh, Mike and Maria Bennett, as well as uh, Matt Taven, um, Taven Square Garden. Uh, Oh, Madison uh, Square Taven. Taven. Excuse me. I apologize to Matt Taven. And And his 10 fans. And all the residents of Madison Square Taven. (laughs) Um, Yeah, uh, that'll be interesting to watch. It seemed very much to me like death for Ring of Honor more than anything right now.
0: Listen, Uh, I'll say this. I think it's a tremendous ad for AEW. Look at their tag division.
1: Yeah, they're talented.
0: The tag division is not in great shape. Kyle O'Reilly and Adam Cole out. Swerving our glory. Probably on the outs. The Young Bucks, nope. Jericho Appreciation Society, what is their tag team situation? Um, 2.0, 2, I guess. 2.0, but like Matt Menard, is he actually hurt still? Like, how, Like what's the situation there? Because they seem to really be protecting him. Yeah. He's not working long matches. He's not doing a ton of spots. Like, this tag division, for as strong as it used to be, is not that strong anymore. And as much as I don't care for Matt Taven and Mike Bennett as singles competitors, They're I think it's a tag teams. team. They're very good. Maria Canellis Bennett absolutely rocks on the mic. I really enjoy like just her shit talking chicanery. Like I, I think yeah. it's it's just basic stuff, but it's good. And I think they can be a really nice addition to this tag team depth roster. And it's they're not going to do anything special, but they don't have to do anything special. They You're just right, have yeah. to be competent. And I yeah. think they can do that.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I do like the matches I've seen of them tagging together, and uh, it'll be good to see them uh, potentially back to some extent. Stu Grayson uh, again on Rampage. There was a backstage segment with the Dark Order talking about the uh, struggles they have had, getting ready to set up ten for a big match with uh, Rouge because Andrade has been memory hold as well as the Mask versus Career match. Mm-hmm. And surprise, Stu Grayson is back at least for that segment because they are in Canada. Um, I've always thought uh, we've had the hungry Cat running. Um, <laughs> I've always thought that Grayson was underused. Uh, I thought him and Evil Uno were a solid tag team. Yeah. And Grayson is a great in-ring performer. Uh, he's not the best on the mic between the accent. That's pretty heavy. And just he's just never really done much from what I've mm-hmm. seen. Uh, but it felt like a good team with Evil Uno who could be uh, competent in the ring and solid on the mic. Yeah. Um, So maybe they'll bring that team back. I don't know. But if he's back, uh, I think that's very good for the Dark Order stable. I
0: really think that we should get a Super Smash Brothers run. I I don't necessarily think they need to win the titles, but that is extra depth to this tag team roster that quite frankly needs it. And it's not something we would have necessarily believed that they had needed um, a couple months ago. But considering everything that's happened uh, from injuries to um, personnel to uh, suspensions, like adding Stu Grayson back to the fold, I think is objectively good, especially because Dark Order is about to lose 10. Now you have two capable tag teams in that stable when in reality, their number one guy is Adam Page. Right. And whether or not he's technically Dark Order, he's Dark Order affiliate until they tell us that he's not. Cause and it sounds like they're trying to split him away from Dark Order just by what happened at All Out and kind of like the couple promo packages that we've seen since it's one of those deals where you need to build up the depth in this division. Cause this is the tag team division in all of American wrestling. Yeah. They need sure. to figure out ways to keep it going. And now you have this mega hot act, the acclaimed that could go really stale because one, like you, you capitalized on it. We saw it all out. And we were talking in, in the VOW suite, like, Hey, they need to run with these guys. They like this. That was the hottest crowd I'd seen for anything live in professional wrestling. That crowd wanted that so bad and they didn't get it. If they would have gotten it, I think the roof would have actually come off of the now arena. It was insane to be there in person. But if you don't have anybody for them, it's kind of one of those things like if, like, uh, one of the reasons like Goldberg failed in WCW. They they built him up and they got him the belt, but then once he had the belt, he almost didn't have anybody really to work with.
1: Yeah, I for mean, a long time, his biggest matches were like DDP and Raven, and like those guys were great, but they weren't main eventers really. You know, mm-hmm. DDP kind of was on the fringes of it at least. Mm-hmm. But yeah,
0: yeah, I mean, his biggest quote unquote match when he was the champion was Kevin Nash at Starcade, and it's Kevin Nash. Like right. they could have done so much more with Goldberg, but once he got the title. They didn't really know what to do with him. And I, I feel like that could be the future of the acclaimed if they don't figure something out in this tag team division. And it's not Tony Khan's fault per se because of all the extenuating circumstances, but now it's his his ability to adapt and figure it out on the fly and the signings of the kingdom in whatever capacity they're coming in. And then you also have uh, Stu Grayson coming back in any kind of role. These are good for the depth of your division you can at least give the acclaim some good feuds until that they really figure out who they want to give the belts to next. Because, hell, even Jurassic Park, Jurassic Express is done. Like, yeah. those are one of your, like, five tag team champions. The Lucha Bros are trios champions. Do you want them double belted when you're trying to establish those trios belts? Probably not. I mean, they did just take the All-Atlantic title off of Orange Cassidy. They have They're to on- continue. Yeah, they have to continue to do something with this tag division. And I think Tony Khan, if we're these signings are going to be what we think they are, yeah, and how they're going to be used on AEW television for at least a little bit. I think it's a very net positive for this division. And I like the steps that they're taking because it's not like you can go out and sign five CM punks, five big stars, and all of a sudden slide them into that division. You have to be yeah. creative with it, and he's doing that,
1: yeah. Uh, and uh, we'll get into the acclaimed. I'm a little uh, pessimistic about their status right now, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up is uh, the Dave Meltzer update on Brawl Out is he has no update. He um, he did hear that uh, one person who was there but not part of the actual fight has not been interviewed yet, which is very – that seems very odd to me because it's been several weeks since the event, uh, and there may be maybe others, he said, that have not been talked to yet. Um, I, you know, I'm kind of wondering at what point this is going to get wrapped up because we are talking about it's been uh about six weeks now, there's no sign, no news of anything from AW. Uh, AW is already kind of battening the hatches down in terms of getting information out there, and they've really stepped that up ever since Brawl Out. All out. Um, I don't know, at some point, you got to wonder like, are they going to actually address this in any meaningful way?
0: Listen, I'll say this. Um, AW has been notoriously tight-lipped with a lot of things. They have kept a lot of secrets, and they have really tried to hide people coming into the company. They have also, like, they have had genuine surprises, and I think that's a net good thing. Now, I don't want Sean Ross tapping in my DMs again but, for <laughs> saying this, but, like, it's they, they're tight-lipped. They keep like nobody knew Brody Lee was even sick. And then all of a sudden he passes away.
1: That's a a kind of situation. Like, you know, hiding the debuts makes sense because you want to, you want it to be a big event. Um, you know, of course, sometimes they will intentionally like leak around like CM Punk coming in. They'll make sure that, you know, he's coming in without saying it. The Brody Lee situation is a man's health. I totally understand like why they're not releasing any, any information about that, uh, while they could avoid it. Um, but we're talking about stuff like suspensions. Like, it's really a kind of amazing that they have had these high profile guys suspended for so long now without any kind of real uh, statement beyond saying on TV that the belts are vacated. Um, there's no state, you know, you don't get a lot of information about injuries anymore. You know, mm-hmm. somebody will disappear and you don't know if it's because of an injury. Like, it's Miro just doing stuff, you know, the occasional pre-tape because of a back injury or something, or is it just because they kind of want to cycle off them for the moment?
0: I have a theory uh, on that and okay. somebody else said it and I want to give them credit, but I can't remember. So I won't. Um, but whoever said this, and if you're listening, give yourself credit. Tony Khan does not like his uh, upper mid carters to lose. So he just doesn't book them. And yeah. I think, I think that's a thing with Miro because Miro is a monster and if you don't necessarily have anything that you really want him to do, there you go. He's yeah. just don't book him. And I think that's what Khan is doing. Now there are a lot of different things. Can you agree or disagree? Do you think it's good strategy? Do you think it's bad? There are a lot of different ways that you can go with this, Fred, but in reality, I think that's the issue. You're talking about a guy who just does not want guys to lose the hell. He protected Billy gunn by yeah. having having a screwy finish like you want to get into that now i yeah, mean you know what let's get into it um does aew have a finish problem does he uh a- is tony Khan too protective of his wrestlers and isn't just allowing guys who probably should just lose clean to lose clean and it cl- and it clouds things because mm-hmm. i think i think there's merit on both sides of this coin here fred
1: Uh, I was rather frustrated by the end of Dynamite last week, especially with the first hour, because they had three straight bullshit finishes. Um, And, like, some of it made sense. Like, I get Christian being involved in making sure that uh, Luchasaurus won the match, because that's not the blow-off to that feud. Now, if they think they're going to keep that feud going for another six, seven months until Christian is able to do the job... I don't, I mean, I think that's crazy just to have Jungle Boy in this uh, holding pattern until that point in time because that's such a long period of time. And you've got them just like screwing with Luchasaurus until uh, by the time that's over, if they stick to that plan, it's going to feel like that feud started in 2012. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just never end. Uh, The swerve finish, swerve Billy Gun finish was atrocious. There's literally no reason. And I know that they're trying to get over swerve as a heel. There's a way to do that and not have it come off as he could not beat Billy Gunn with his finisher. He had to use a roll-up, uh, a cheating roll-up with his foot on the ropes or grabbing the ropes.
0: It's a, uh, Billy Gunn is older than The Undertaker.
1: Billy Gunn is a nice mouthpiece or side piece, whatever you want to call him, for the acclaimed at this point in time. He's kind of backed. <laughs> he's backed his way into that. You know, it's completely by accident, but cool. Keep it going. But, None of that is going to be affected by him losing to Swerve Strickland, who is like a step below, like even an occasional main eventer, but could get there pretty easily. And I think they're definitely going to try to accomplish that over the next year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just booking malpractice. You know, you've you you literally go out of your way to kind of harm Swerve Strickland's momentum by making him look like you've bought up by not being able to pin a lower mid card guy that's ancient. Like, you know, it would have even been better if it was Dustin Rhodes because at least, you know, whenever they pop up Dustin Rhodes on TV, it's like he has a modicum of, uh, you know, authenticity or um, legitimacy in, in, with regards to the, the stakes of the company. It feels like compared to Billy Gunn, uh, also, but that was, that was a bad finish. I hated that finish so much.
0: I agree, but I also want to give AEW the benefit of the doubt a little bit because I'm very curious how this is going to continue to play out in the context of the story. Because when you look at All Out, you had um, two accidental bumps with Swerve in Our Glory that led to two tremendous near falls. One of them, which really got the crowd and myself. yeah. And then you had a couple of those at Grand Slam. And then you had the Famouser. And you had the Jukebox. Like, this story between these teams has been cheating and I don't really have a big issue in, in if you look at it from the perspective of hey there's been cheating this whole feud that's kind of what this is, it's shitbaggery okay that's fine but it, we're not talking about it in a vacuum, we're talking about it being one of the linchpins on a show that had a ton of this and I think this one's getting singled out a little bit unfairly
1: but it also makes sense because it's Billy gun. Yeah. Like, it's like, what are you, what are you gaining by having, you, you could have just had him do an eye poke halfway through the match. Or some other kind of obvious yeah. cheating. Um, they, they did a, I'm tra- struggling to remember who they, uh, did a good job of, uh, showing them turning heel, uh, over the past year. But there was someone that they had that like just started, you know, doing cheating stuff. And, uh, as he turned heel and, uh, You know, that worked well. Uh, You could do it in a less or a a more subtle way and less like, you know, over your head. And obviously like, oh, hey, look, he's cheating. He's bad now. Um, You know, Swerve's kind of been a a bit of a heel ever since the start of the tag team. It's it's kind of like Mm -hmm. the Lex Luthor thing thing from just before the NWO where you've got a, a heel who's friends with a face and the heel is cheating but doesn't want his face friend to know. Uh, if you would have positioned it as more of that rather than just outright, I've got to, I've got to stretch myself to beat a fifty-eight-year-old Billy Gunn. Because like, here's the thing: is he hit his finisher right before that too, and he got he kicked out. Like, you know, what are we doing with that? I think that's really harmful to Swerve. So the way they that, did it,
0: I I think you're right. Um, I I think I also is maybe. Reading a little too much into the fact that there's been cheating throughout the entire course of this um, this rivalry between the two. After the match
1: was over, I didn't feel like there that really got played up as much as oh no, it's sort of his you know not being nice kind of thing. Yeah,
0: and I, I think so too. But let's look at the bigger picture here, Fred, because that's kind of what this the theme of this show is about. It's this is bigger picture AEW because we are releasing it a little later than we want to because we have Tuesday Night Dynamite. In just a couple of hours, my big thing is I think this company is a little is a little too lenient on the bullshit finishes, but I also don't think it's that big of an issue
1: because I don't think it's they. Very, uh, this one, this last show just hit me wrong. Like it just yeah. hit me like too much of it.
0: Mm-hmm. And I I think bullshit finishes are fine, and like th- they do the cheating spots. I feel like it's almost a crutch for Tony at this point where he's just kind of gotten into a groove with it. But I remember, you know, as much as we call Eric Bischoff a fraud, which he is, I remember he said something that really has resonated with me throughout my wrestling fandom. And he said that it is very hard for finishers to to write a good finish consistently. That was something that he didn't really do in WCW. Right. He had a guy that did it for him because he said it was so tremendously difficult. And I wonder if, it, within the context of that creative room, how much influence Tony Khan has in that. Obviously, he makes the final decision, but does he actually come up with the final decision is completely different. Um, does he have somebody he can lean on for finishes? And is there who is in his ear telling him that, look, you're leaning too much into this. I know how much you love Mid-South. But at the end of the day, you really can't be leaning on this like a crutch. And I I really hope that somebody gets in his ear and kind of helps him through this. Because there's just a little too much of it. And I think interferences with finishes is good. You need that in wrestling. You need some of that bullshit. Because it's, that's, like, this is a stupid business. It's a corner corner business.
1: that expected when he said that like win and loss records are going to matter and there's going to be a sports style presentation that took that to mean like it's going to be, you know, worked MMA, like we got battle arts back or something. I, I, you know, I think you just kind of deluded yourself from the start, to be honest. But I, I do think at times he's carried it too far. And I think that's what's happened recently.
0: I would agree with that, Fred. It's there needs to be a healthy balance. And right now, I don't think he has that. Um, let's talk about a couple other things related to Dynamite itself and the AEW universe. Um, AEW is now prohibiting talent from working GCW shows. Mox can still work some indies, but he is being asked to ease up with his schedule. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they need to rely on him now more than ever because their star power is just not able to make television. Um, And obviously, I love that Mox, because I had heard Mox had really fought to... Go and lose to Nick Gage, which is why they had um, Morrissey and Stokely go in and make that deathmatch finish kind of bullshit because they he wanted to do the job for Nick Gage, and it's Nick Gage. Nobody cares that he lost to Nick Gage. If you care that he lost to Nick Gage, like, come on. It's Nick Gage. They have a long history. Gage is a god in the context of GCW. It's fine, but I also understand Tony wanting to protect... Uh, John Moxley one because wrestling can is AEW canon and two you need a healthy Moxley and GCW just doesn't really do a great job with talent on an overall level as far as taking care of them doing the right things so I don't have an issue with them not working GCW but I think it's very noteworthy for those who aren't appearing regularly on AEW television some of those lower card uh, talents especially those that you see on dark because GCW is one of the bigger indies where you get opportunities to wrestle.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, this kind of feels like it's been a long time coming. I remember that basically Marco stunt fell out of favor after he did, the the dildo influenced, uh, match with Effie, like back in mm-hmm. 2020, was it? I think, um, And, uh, you know, it feels like a very sleazy promotion versus what AEW tries to do. I'm not saying that, like, AEW, you have to go to the front row wearing a suit or something. Uh, But GCW is what it is, and they like that aspect of it. And uh, I feel like that kind of goes against what Tony Khan's trying to do. Um, I also think a heavy part of this is uh, John Moxley's uh, alcoholism that he went into rehab for last year. Um, That, I think, was exacerbated by uh, the work schedule he's trying to keep up and trying to go to all these different shows across the country. Um, and I think that definitely didn't help. So I think that it's rather intentional to not just keep him healthier physically but also mentally in terms of reducing his workload.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting um, dynamic that will continue to follow. Um, and as most people already know, um, whenever AEW talents go somewhere, They win. So um, this could end up being a net positive for GCW long term, but we'll continue to monitor this, especially if we see AEW talent being asked, starting to work GCW shows again. Um, A couple more things um, per Meltzer. Tony Khan is also pitching ring of honor as a separate show and all elite women as a separate show. Um, His belief is that there's no demand for adding hours of wrestling content, but Kathleen Finch, who is the chairwoman and chief content officer for Warner Brothers Discovery, said they're looking to work with AEW to do a show that is quote, not in a wrestling ring. Fred, we did have something drop just a little, um, a little while ago. I think it was earlier today that there's going to be a, um, a backstage style show. I'm not quite sure how that's going to work, but it feels like it's going to be more reality based Mm -hmm. as far as structure and format and how it's presented to the audience, which considering all the drama in AEW backstage could end up being a tremendous watch. Um, but it will be interesting to see how that kind of plays out and how things continue to grow and develop. Um, it For those who don't think Warner Brothers Discovery is all in an AEW, but you need to look around. They, they love this company. They're delivering ratings that are far superior to pretty much anything else that they run other than live sports, which is what they consider AEW. Yeah. They are all in with AEW and it's working.
1: Yeah, it is. It's uh, AEW's TV ratings have generally been quite good, especially over the past few months. Um, so I think that's a definite positive, And I think that they're very much wanted around uh, Warner brother media. Uh, one concern with this Warner brother media, super cheap, <laughs> like, uh, they are cutting back on everything like they took down at uh, years old animated shows that they don't pay royalties on from HBO Max just because they don't want to pay the hosting cost of it, I think, which would have to be minuscule minuscule within the um, realm of what their mu- their, you know, balance book is. Um, so the big concern is not so much will they be able to stay on TV as it is, will they be able to get a big increase in rights like they're hoping to? Uh, that's what I would be watching with the uh, AEW Warner uh, relationship moving forward.
0: I would love to be able to go back and uh, read some of Sue Williams' columns where he does the Dynamite Dozen, the 12 best uh, Dynamite matches of each year, and then go back to those Dynamites and watch them. Because like, as much as I remember loving – Hawk and kenny omega the iron man match in real time i don't remember anything about it i would love to go rewatch that match like and to have them on an hbo max i think would be an incredible draw for a lot of people and i think it would do great business because just i mean as much as the wwe network was a failure for what their projections were it was still pretty successful they have like what 1.6 or 1.8 million people subscribed
1: something like that yeah of, of course, it's now folded into Peacock, but yeah, I mean, that that deal has worked out really well for WWE, I think, the Peacock deal, and I think that if AEW is able to get a uh, similar deal going with uh, HBO Max for their content, I think it'll similarly help them.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree completely, and as we keep talking the business of AEW, Dynamite ratings, nine hundred eighty three thousand point three two on that, fourth on cable. Um, it was behind their biggest competitor, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, Dodgers Padres and the post game show, which I believe Dodgers Padres bled into the post game show. So I don't necessarily think that that's completely accurate as far as um, what the ratings were, because with live sports, it's incredibly fluid and especially with playoff baseball and how long games go. I think that game went four and a half hours. So look, these are, They're living between 900,000 and 1.1 million total viewers, 0.3 to 0.4 in 18 to 49. This is where AEW lives. And if this was a bigger dynamite, like um, if they were doing grand slam and these were the numbers, I think you'd have to be disappointed with this. I have no problem with it. I think it's fine. They did what a 0.17 for rampage this past Friday.
1: Yeah, it was up somehow. That doesn't really make sense, but it was up, so.
0: Well, I think, yeah, you have more people now that it's starting to get colder, because, you know, I live in Minnesota. People are starting to stay in more later, because once it hits, like, 8 o'clock, it's, like, 35, 40 degrees, and it's a lot less advantageous to want to be outside, so... I, I wonder how much that's going to play into it. And obviously you had a good rampage card. You had John Moxley wrestling on the card, which is always going to be a draw. Um, I, I wonder how much that's going to play into it and how that's going to be impacted moving forward. It's going to be something that we're going to want to watch here, Fred.
1: Yeah, uh, it'll be very interesting. Keep an eye on it. Um, so uh, moving on, we uh, have two very small tidbits about uh, the non-wrestling careers of some affiliated talent are almost affiliated. uh, CJ Perry, a.k.a. Lana, um, a.k.a. uh, Mrs. Miro, uh, is going to be on the next season of VH1 Surreal Life, which is a reasonably successful show. Uh, Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to see if she ends up coming in, if there's anything coming out of that. And Anthony Bowens is apparently going to be in a movie directed by Daniel Fischl, who is best known for portraying Topanga in Boy Meets World. Of course, uh, Fischl is a huge wrestling fan, apparently. Uh, right, hold good.
0: on, hold on, Fred. You didn't say it right, Topanga. <laughs> you you got to have that emphasis. Uh, like it is Topanga is one of those special characters, uh, especially for um, our age group. She, That's right. she, Kelly Kapowski, um, DJ Tanner. Like they're they're some of those legendary characters from that those mid nineties sitcoms.
1: Uh, but yeah, those uh, two uh, little tidbits, and then uh, I guess Dustin Rhodes was vaguely talking about retirement on Twitter. Who knows if that will mean anything, and uh, you know who knows if it'll lead to anything. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, it wouldn't I'll shock me if he retired because Dustin Rhodes is in his fifties. He's very involved with the Nightmare Factory. He may want to move into more of a backstage role. I mean, he doesn't wrestle a ton, anyways. So maybe it's something where he teases retirement, does like a, a big run. Um, Not that I wouldn't say big as in he wins a title, but big as in he he is a little bit more televised and they give him a proper send off and then he kind of moves into more of a backstage kind of role. It it would not shock me. Um, He's he's been wrestling since the late 80s. Yeah,
1: it's been a hell of a career for him uh dynamite rampage uh you want to start off with rampage because honestly i only have like one thing i want to talk about on there which is the dalton castle segment
0: yeah well go ahead and start with the dalton castle segment fred because i think that's a really interesting one
1: uh it was good that's my contribution um <laughs> I think castle really could be a pretty big star for aw he's got a lot of charisma uh, my wife took notice of him immediately when he came on screen. Like he just came, comes across as a star on TV, and uh, I'm pretty excited to see what this Cherokee match is going to be like because Castle will go to the ring, um, and uh, I don't know. I liked, I liked him coming out. I hope that he's part of AEW on a regular basis. I hope he gets the uh, graphic and everything becomes all elite. Um, but I liked the segment. I thought it was pretty much the highlight of rampage since they very rarely do, uh, angles that really have much meaning. Uh, so I was a fan of it. What about yourself?
0: I, I love Dalton castle and I wish that his body had held up just a little bit better. Cause I remember I flipped on ROH TV. It must've been like, I don't know, the mid 2010s and I saw Dalton castle for the first time and he was with the boys and he was at the beginning of his ROH run. I'm like, whoa. Yeah, This guy is good. He has all the charisma in the world, and I, I was really had high hopes for him to be great. And unfortunately, his body just has not been able to keep up with where his talent level is. I, I hope that he's healed enough where he could really have a good run, especially with the advent of a new ROH, um, because he and the boys, now that they're reunited, I think is a great act. Yeah. It works. Um, Dalton Castle has... Every ounce of charisma to make it happen. I hope that his his body can just go with where his charisma is because he is a good add to any
1: roster. Yeah, he's got a ton of talent, and I hope that they let him show it and like actually make use of him.
0: Mm-hmm. Other, uh, other than that, I don't have a lot of thoughts on Rampage. I thought it was it was a good show. I don't think you need to go out of your way to uh, watch it but you're going to enjoy your time. You're not going to waste any part of your hour, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, Stu Grayson showing up was cool if you uh, like him. Um, Okay, I do have a negative on this show that I want to talk about, which is uh, the Ethan Page-Isaiah Cassidy match. So they do this angle with Mm -hmm. uh, private party uh, where they want to get away from the no longer Andrade family office. Um and Matt Hardy wants to team up with him again and go in the trios division. Um, and this actually leads into a reader question we got, which is basically along these lines of what are they going to do with the storyline? But I hated that they built this match up as something that mattered, mattered, and I'm not particularly um you know excited about the concept of a twelve minute Ethan Page Isaiah Casty match on Rampage. But I don't think you can build the way they did to the storyline and then just do a two minute match. Uh, where Ethan Page squashes Isaiah Cassidy uh, after teasing of, you know, putting the stakes of Matt Hardy's contract on the line, the private party contracts on the line. And I just thought this was um, terribly booked. I thought that it was, you know, just squishing that down to nine you know 90 seconds of in-ring action where Ethan Page basically kills him um, and then immediately to the backing it. You know, it's a storyline that should have got a little more time a little more feature should have got, you know, some actual entering time to build any kind of uh, suspense around the result of what that match would be and what it would mean going forward. And I thought that was a pretty disappointing, um, you know, way of uh, approaching it of utilizing their time.
0: Yeah. um, I'll say this. The best part of this feud has been Stokely Hathaway's tweet where he (laughs) told Matt Hardy that he had to uh, fill out their score seven out of 10 on this test. And yes. question 10 was, are you invited to the cookout? A, no, B, no, C, no. And I thought that was just one of the funniest things of all time. That yeah, um, was great. Oh, it, it, look, as much as we don't like this feud, I think Stokey halfway rules. And um, I, I really could care less about where the story is going. But I do know that we we talked about the tag division. I think private party needs to continue to get in ring time. And at the very least, I know uh, Joe has talked about it with Jade Cargill. Give local crowds a dark match where all you do is be like, hey, you're going to get this match. It's not going to be televised. We're not going to put it up on YouTube. This is for you. And then just let private party go 20 minutes with random tag teams or do it like a private party circuit where they just wrestle the same team week after week after week and let them build themselves up and figure it out and get better because there is a lot of talent to work with, with this team, but they need cohesion. They need to learn match structure better. They need to just get some of the sloppiness that they currently have, which was endearing at first because they were so raw, but we're three years past that. We're three years away from that young bunch private party match that kind of made them stars. And they really don't seem to have grown a lot. They, they need to do something. And I hope the end of this is a private party that is much more usable and reliable on television. That's my hope with this. Otherwise, I think it's it's a failure.
1: Yeah, I, I think that they've been coming across better in terms of in-ring performances uh, over the past year or so. When I've seen them, they seem more complete in the ring and better based as far as their talents are concerned. Uh, but, you know, they should be, I feel like, doing more than just like the backup tag team and the heel stable. Because it feels like they've been slotted behind the Butcher and the Blade, which seems backwards to me considering where you'd like them to be. But, you know. Um, But yeah, that's it for Rampage. I thought the opening match was good. Um, I would say that was like three and a half stars. Um, The Gates of Agony thing just feels very weird. And I ranted about that in my column about how I feel like one of the issues with AEW right now is uh, who they're choosing to push. Uh, I think they've gone really hard on the embassy in general, and I feel like that's not as over as some some other acts that they have largely put on ice. And I feel like that's kind of a recurring issue to some extent. Um, But yeah, that's it for Rampage. That's, you know, it's a B show. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. um, And as far as Dynamite's concerned, um, we already touched on quite a bit of it. I want to talk about the Hangman Page promo because I thought that was masterclass. Yeah, it was great. It fit his character. He invoked emotion he, he talked about kind of some of his bullshit and how he, he's an anxious cowboy and then really sold the fact that you want to see him wrestle John Moxley, which will be in just a couple of hours. And I loved it. I thought it was excellent. I want to see more of that from Hangman Page. I want him to have an opportunity to deliver more of that. I think overall, that is awesome. And this is the hangman page that we were truly hoping that we were going to get with the formation of this company. And obviously he had his title run. His title run was, it was good. It wasn't yeah. great. It was good. And I think as he continues to grow and develop, he has not had that that title reign. And we all know that title reign. We all know the Okada two-year reign. We yeah. know Tanahashi's 11 consecutive wins. We know like it's the 10-pole reign. CM Punk in WWE, like those ten pole reigns are so big for a wrestler's career. Hangman hasn't had that. And I hope this is the beginning of that push to get him that 10 pole reign you know, within the next couple of years.
1: Yeah. And I think that uh, one thing that really struck me was that was probably the best segment Adam Page has had as far as character development since he won the world title back at the beginning of the year, uh, late last year. Um, I think I thought that was just fantastic for him,
0: uh, absolutely. Um, I, I don't really don't have any major arcing thoughts that we already haven't talked about. There's one I
1: did want to ask you about, uh, sure. before we move on from the show the finish of uh, Danielson Jericho and where Daniel Garcia re you know basically rejoined the Jericho Appreciation Society. What did you think of that? Where do you think that's going to end up going? And was that the right move?
0: I had. Reservations about him actually joining the Blackpool Combat Club when I think it was the first match with uh, Jer- or uh, Danielson and Garcia. William Regal straight up said on commentary that I would prefer that Garcia not join the Blackpool Combat Club because we want to have good competition to wrestle. And I thought that was a tremendous compliment to Garcia. And I thought it was also based in reality. I'm like, I. I'm going to keep this at arm's length because I really, I I think they're setting the seeds up for Garcia to actually not join the Blackpool combat club. And somehow he's going to stay with JAS And that's what ended up happening. If we get some kind of BS where then all of a sudden he joins up with the Blackpool combat club within the next, like I'd say six to eight weeks, I'll hate it. Um, I didn't really have much of a, an issue with the turn. I thought the turn was good, and I thought, I like part of the basis of the turn was Garcia was pissed at Jericho for cheating consistently with that ring of honor belt. And I almost feel like he's flipped the script mentally a little bit, where he just doesn't care as much anymore. And he understands, like within wrestling canon, that look, Jericho may be a shitbag, but he's for being a shitbag, he's on the honorable side. It's like, it's like the, like, um, that nine squares where you're like chaotic, good, chaotic, neutral, chaotic, yep. evil. Like, I think um, he is like, like chaotic evil. Like it's just one of those deals. I I think it's within his head. I think Jericho works better than he initially did as far as the elements of cheating. Yeah. Just don't flippy flop consistently. I thought that the story worked well, how they follow it up is going to, really sink in if this was a good move or not
1: yeah i i'm really concerned uh about this to be honest because i feel like that garcia was building up a lot of momentum like main event level momentum and then they just had him kind of just fall back in line and unless there's some big swerve in the next week or two like maybe you know they won't. But if he were to cost Jericho the title against Dalton Castle again, I wouldn't do that. But just something along those lines of uh, backstabbing Jericho uh, to establish himself, you know, I worry that all that progress they made with Garcia will be completely, you know, negated and lost forever. Yeah, because I'm kind of with you. Once you have a new guy hot, you know, there's no guarantee that that new guy will ever be hot again. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're talented is you know if if the time has struck if you know it's like the acclaimed like if you had waited 6 months on the acclaimed to put the belts on them to push them to the top of the heap you know they may not have been over they may have lost all this steam they've built up you know putting the belts on them when they did uh 100% worked out and that's what they had to do and mm-hmm. i worry Daniel garcia is in a similar position and that this you know past week or two was where he should have established himself somehow out of the shadow of Jericho uh started a big feud with them and we didn't get that yeah
0: it's i'm very intrigued to see how this all plays out cuz i think garcia has world champion potential oh, yeah. with his charisma yeah. his in ring work like but you you're right if you screw him up now is it going to be a kaito kiyomiya thing where it's you you just lost it um, yeah. and we're still, everything's on the fence still with Kiyomiya because now he's doing this Muto thing, which just freaking sucks. But <laughs> Kiyomiya is still only 25 years old. He's got all world talent and we're kind of in a similar place with Garcia, except Garcia hasn't reached the top of the mountain. But if you fail him now, if he gets to the top of the mountain, it's not going to mean shit
1: right and and you've got to progress your character and there's some other examples like i think starlight kid is a good one in stardom right now where she's turned heel and is kind of like embraced pushing herself as a top star separate from the uh face unit she was with before but you know garcia not doing that um you know I, i have concerns that he's just gonna fall back in the pecking order and with wrestling you want to constantly be establishing new stars i'm not saying that you need to stop pushing the old ones but you need the freshness at the top of the card to keep things interesting and if in two years the main event scene is still moxley and jericho and adam page and cm punk assuming he comes back or kenny omega if he comes back without anyone new in it that's a problem
0: it 100 is a problem i'm I'm very in, intrigued to see how this kind of ends up, but we really don't know how it's going to end up until we, until we get to that point. Um, Fred, as we, as we kind of wrap things up, we obviously have dynamite tonight. Um, Jericho versus Dalton castle, which we touched on. I think Jericho is going to end up winning that match because he's, he's, so. he's, he's doing this gimmick. And I think where he beats all the former ROH champions, I think if that gimmick wasn't going to work out. He would have lost it to Danielson. Um, we have Sheeta versus Storm for the interim AEW Women's Championship. Um, we have Death Triangle. That you
1: what? I assume Storm will win that.
0: Yeah, I would. I would assume so too. Um, Death Triangle versus Best Friends and Orange Cassidy. Um, is that for the belts?
1: I think it is.
0: I think so too, but I am not one hundred percent sure. And then obviously we have Jericho or sorry John Moxley versus Hangman Adam Page for the AEW World Championship. Um, and then they're going to have, um, interviews with Danielson, MJF and Wheeler, Utah. Um, now before, as we close up and this may be, this is going to be something that's already outdated. Does MJF cash in that chip in some way, shape or form tonight? Now it doesn't necessarily mean he has to do the WWE style cash in. He could do the Rob Van Dam where he just goes up and be like, I'm taking that belt at full gear. Um, yeah, because Rob Van Dam went up to Cena and cashed right. it in and said, I'm I'm taking it a one night stand.
1: Like calling your shot as a cash-in, if you're going to use that terminology, is mm-hmm. is hard. That's what wrestling is. It's a challenge that you then build to down the road. Uh money, you know, modern WWE money that the uh surprise cash ins are, I think, pretty much, if you look at it, a detriment to the product. Uh you gain the you know the aspect of something could happen at any point in time. But what it costs you is building good storylines, especially for first-time champions, and it really undercuts you know, establishing those new top stars. Um, so I think that they have to, if they're going to cash it in, it, you know, big air quotes there, it has to be him saying, okay, you just won the match, Moxley. I assume it's going to be Moxley. I will face you at full gear, and I will win the title.
0: And it, let's go down this rabbit hole before we wrap up here, Fred. Let's say he does that. We've already had a weird dynamic of babyface MJF and heel MJF. If he does that, that's a pretty babyface move. Are they going to flip him? Like,
1: I, I think it's I, inevitable I, that they do.
0: But oh, We we know that, but I'm talking yeah. now.
1: I think it's way too soon. Um, I think so I will- too, but do you think
0: Tony Connell feel forced considering where he's at, how he's almost had to rush his story because of... Uh, I don't think that they were going to have MJF do any of this stuff here really quick. I think this was a very long arc. We've already seen Tony Khan utilize long arcs before. Hangman was a long arc. Wardlow was a long arc. And now it feels like they're pushing this a little bit because of the lack of CM Punk in the elite. This was going to be CM Punk's 10-pole reign within the context of AEW. So, but because they're rushing things with MJF, or at least it feels that way in my perspective, I wonder if they're going to also rush his baby face turn because they feel like they may have no other choice.
1: Two weeks ago, I would have said no way in hell. Um, I thought, I thought that it was very clear that they were establishing him, not just as like a main event heel, but th- the top heel in the company. Mm-hmm. Um, I think now there's pretty good reason to question it with the last couple of segments, like where Stokely, you forced him or, you know, forced the ring upon him to use uh after the match with you, I think it was, and then the backstage segment where he cut what was pretty much a babyface but I'm a jerk promo. Um I wouldn't be too shocked. Uh but I do think that it would be a mistake. One thing I've I forget who said it. It was someone from Voices of Wrestling. I think it might have been Kelly Harris. Um or that one thing they've done is uh, or one thing that you know might be the case is that tony khan's booking has dropped ever since all out because he's been so distracted by the legal issues surrounding that and i think that's a very possible impact we're seeing here it may be leading him to make some decisions that are really optimal and this could definitely be a big one
0: yeah it's mjf is going to be the one thing that we need to to continue to monitor as far as this company. And I will say this, Fred, I'm, I'm very excited for dynamite tonight. We're going to have a lot to talk about next week because there's going to be a lot of storyline to come out of this weekend and this week in AEW. Um, do you have any final thoughts, um, as, as we wrap this show up and try and get things going before tonight's show?
1: Uh, Tony Khan tends to struggle. I feel like with the, uh, in between shows you know not so much the build to big shows or even the big shows themselves but the ones that are the low you know the the quieter points in the story if you will and i feel like we've been seeing probably a little bit of that over the past few weeks have kind of irritated me I fully expect The Night Show to be great. I think uh, that he he always makes, it seems like, the right booking decisions in these situations. Granted, they're the ones that you've been building to for several months. They're not a surprise. You don't need a surprise. You don't need a surprise when it comes to telling a story all the time. In fact, uh, Swerves should be the minority of circumstances you see with big shows. Um, I'm excited for it, and I think it'll go well. I think it'll be a really solid... uh, almost pay-per-view caliber show. And uh, I think it'll hopefully get help get some things back on track.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. This is going to be a fun show. Tony Khan loves to deliver um, with, spe- we have three title matches and
1: mm-hmm. one yeah, of and them it, is, curious, well, by the way, I double check that four
0: um so we have four title matches. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see if all these title matches start diluting AEW as far as their drawing power because they feel like they have a title match every week. But I think once ROH happens, there's going to be less of that. And I don't see that as a long-term issue. If you, if there's a genuine issue that you have with ROH being featured so much on AEW, there's going to be a lot of crossover with these two companies. So start getting used to it. This is going to be, it's going to be a normal thing. And like AEW canon is wrestling canon. So like, Get used to it, buddy.
1: Uh, you got anything else? Do you want to do the backlog real quick? Do you have anything to add to that?
0: Um, I, I watched that Brandon Cutler-Cerpetico match from Dark. I think that was, what, uh, two weeks ago, or was that this week? I think, um, I think
1: it was this past week.
0: It was It was fun. It was good. I, I told you before the show, I like watching lower card – or, sorry, e- even equal card wrestlers go up against each other because you get similar skill sets. You get similar – push levels it the the match result is in doubt and i thought it was just fun um that dark can really deliver on some of these and especially when you have two equals because you get a lot of squashes and i think those are very important for both sides but i like the equal um combatants and i thought this was really well done
1: yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a half more or less a comedy match. I, both of those guys are good at that kind of thing. Um, I also saw on Dark Elevation uh, from the same week, uh, Tony Storm versus Emi Sakharov, uh, which was a really solid uh, match. And also QT Marshall against Action Andretti, who I would not seen before, but Andretti got a lot of hype off of this match. QT he, looks, Marshall.
0: he looks good. He looks like somebody that can be a, a real player in the context of AEW down the line.
1: Yeah, QT Marshall, I mean, is a very solid wrestler. He He's great in his role as just a lower-level heel, but he can really help guys shine in the ring, and Andretti came out with that smelling like roses. He had a great match. Um, so both of those I went three and a half stars on. So as far as, like, AEW ancillary programs, that's my thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as just outside of AEW, I was able to watch um, the Ray Phoenix versus Hiho Del Piquino match from Triple Mania this past weekend. Um, Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Probably going to be my Lucha match of the year. I dropped a full five stars on it. Um Vikingo is... I mean, both of those guys are just amazing, but it was more than just flips. There was uh, quite a good bit of uh, storytelling in it for a Technico v. Technico match uh, where both guys were really struggling to win. There was intensity to it. Uh, there was uh, drama to it. It was fantastic. Just really good stuff. Um, so that would be the... One thing I would definitely recommend that I saw from this past week.
0: Yeah, I, that is on my backlog to watch. I need to watch those, uh, like the top three from Triple Mania. Yeah. That looked like a very, very fun show in the second. I'm able to get my hands on it. I am going to watch it because Vikingo, he has a, a U.S. visa now. I want him. Oh, man, in, he needs an AEW. He needs to be an AEW, and he needs to be an AEW wrestler full-time. Like This is a guy that had some people comparing him to Ray Mysterio as being that next guy. And yeah. some of the things he can do in the ring, it's like, it's like watching Tony Hawk pull off a 900 when guys are struggling with seven twenties. Like, yeah. obviously I was skateboarding in like 1998, but only like two other guys have ever pulled off a 900 since then. And the advent of technology and just understanding uh, physics better and, and rotations like that's pretty incredible. So Vikingo is special and he needs to be displayed, utilized and paid like a worldwide star.
1: I will say that if he's going to be brought into a W, he needs to be treated like a main eventer from day one. We can't have the getting lost in the shuffle or being slotted at like the level of a Dante Martin kind of guy because mm-hmm. he's already developed. He's experienced. He's a great worker. He can go right now. I would probably put him above bandito bandito is great. Um, mm-hmm. But you, we can't have him like be brought in and then just fall into the mid card. He's got to be above like a Takeshita kind of push what we got, you know, from him earlier this year before he went back to Japan. Yeah. He, he's got to be like a, a high, high level guy on the card.
0: Yeah, I agree hundred percent, Fred. And one thing that I, I think is interesting that honestly shouldn't be a factor, but I think it is a factor. He's not a master luchador. And I think right. that, that is inherently going to help him coming here. Because as as much as it shouldn't be an issue, guys with masks just aren't pushed in the states. The, like Rey Mysterio got some pushes, like the Lucha brothers have gotten some pushes, but they haven't been pushed on any kind of real main event level. And I think Vikingo not being a masked wrestler is going to inherently help him off the jump.
1: Yeah, the I will say that the thing with Tony Khan isn't so much that he doesn't uh, he looks down on people that wear masks. I don't think it's like that Eric Bischoff slash Vince Man kind of thing. Like, why are you wearing it? We gotta get off, get get it off you immediately. I think that his biggest issue is that is a promo company. AEW is a promo company, and if you can't cut a promo, you're probably not going to be a main eventer. And there's ways around that, but we haven't really seen Tony. booking stuff so that they're around that. Um, it's only been promo guys at the very high level of the card. So, considering that, you know, that could very much limit where he thinks uh, the Kingo would slot in.
0: Yeah, 100%. With that, Fred, that wraps up another episode of The Good, The Bad, and The Hungry. This was a lot of fun, and we're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about and review next week. Um, yeah, it'll be man. really
1: interesting to... See what happens and kind of talk, kind of try to speculate what's coming out of there. I think uh, this is,
0: this is going to be a very big turning point for AEW, considering everything with the elite and CM Punk is still so much up in the air. We have to consider this company to be rid of all of them until we hear otherwise, because that's how this booking is going to um, really. Re- it's going to reflect what they know, and I'm very intrigued to see how that comes up, comes into fruition.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, you could email us at hungiepod at gmail.com. That's H-U-N-G-E-E-P-O-D at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at goodbadhungy, again, H-U-N-G-E-E. Uh, please rate and review our show, recommend it to your friends if you enjoy it. Uh, and if you have any questions, feel free to tweet or email at us, and we'll try to get a, get to them for the next show. Uh, also, with- you can also
0: put them in the Voice of Wrestling Discord, where we have our own channel. And right. we have already answered multiple questions from the channel please feel free to interact with us in there. We love a good discussion.
1: For sure. Well, I think that's it for this week. Uh, Tyler, you take care and have a good one. You too. Skull Vikings.